Amen. I think that's the first time I have ever sung that hymn. Yeah, that's the first time. I've, I've, very rare will you find a hymn that I don't know, Jonathan, that I did not know that one. Yeah, wow, that was just so good too, wasn't it? And I love that. Such an appropriate, such an appropriate verse, especially when you, you think about the pressures of life and um, the challenges of life. I'm so thankful that we can meet the God of the Word in the Word of God. And His promises are sure. And they're unchanging. Everlasting. There's a lot that changes in our world. <clears throat> we change, don't we? You know, our opinions change and our looks change. But God is unchanging. You know, He's immutable. He's unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, I'm so glad of that wonderful truth. <clears throat> it's good to see each of you here tonight. I don't know if you came in when it was raining cats and dogs, but it was coming down hard a little while ago. I remember when I was, um, I was teaching in, uh, in Vietnam several years ago. You remember when I made the trip over there? And I used that expression because it was literally monsoon season while we were over there. And, and uh, I got up with that, you know, that, all that group of pastors and church planters and many of their spouses were there. And my translator was right here with me. And I had been told not to use certain idiomatic expressions. And the first words out of my mouth were these. It sure is raining cats and dogs out there. And uh, my translator looked over at me and said, cannot say that. <laughs> so, anyway, you know what I mean when I say that, right? So, um, amen. Well, I hope you're having a good week. So good to see each of you here tonight. And if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and open up to the very first chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. I hope you have a notes page tonight. And by the way, did you notice I don't have a front and back? It's only one side. I, I, lost, I lost confidence in myself after last Wednesday night. And yeah, so you, we've only got one side. And so we'll hopefully get through all of it tonight. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you do have your Bible. And we're going to continue right along in our midweek study of just sort of overview, an overview of each book of the Bible, our 52 weeks in the Word, and we're in the first five books of the Bible. We've been looking at the Pentateuch, and if you remember, that expression comes from a Greek word, a Greek term that means five books or five-volume work, and so the first five books of the Bible. In Hebrew, they're known as the Torah, which means law or instruction. Think of it in terms of instruction, uh, but they're the first five books of the, the Old Testament known as the five books of Moses, simply because Moses is the author. And though they are five books, they do tell one story, and it is really the story of how God has created the world. There's the important call of Abraham. And then of how God has chosen the nation of Israel as his people through whom he's going to bring blessing to the world. And so if we were to summarize the first five books of Moses, I could sort of put it in summary form in that way. Now, again, there's a lot that's not being said in that definition, but the gist of it is God has created the world. Man has sinned. God has a plan of redemption in mind. The Bible's the story of that plan of redemption as it's unfolding but it involves the specific calling of Abraham with whom God establishes a covenant, makes a promise that he's going to bring blessing into the whole world, that through Abraham's seed and descendants, God's going to bring this blessing, not just, not just blessing for the nation of Israel, but God's going to use Abraham's descendants to bring blessing to the whole wide world. And so that's the promise of Messiah. And you think about how the world has been given such great blessing in the gift of a Savior. And so that's the emphasis there. 
And so these first five books are the story of all of that. And Deuteronomy really is a very important piece of that story because uh, Deuteronomy represents the law of God being reaffirmed with a second generation of Israelites who were on the threshold. They're on the cusp of the promised land. And so even that name, Deuteronomy, basically means second giving of the law or the, the second law, second statement of the law. And you remember why that's important? Well, if you can remember back from last week, we, we looked at numbers, sort of a crash course of numbers. The first generation of Israelites that come out of Egypt, what should have been a simple 11-day trip in terms of just distance, really from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, ought to have just been about an 11-day journey. But it didn't end up being an 11-day trip. It ended up being a 40-year test or trial. And that's what disobedience always will do. When we respond to the promises of God without faith, but with unbelief, we, we, we don't stop making progress. We actually backslide. It's a good word we don't use a whole lot of anymore, but... You're, you're either making progress spiritually or you're backsliding. One thing you're not doing is standing still. You're either moving forward or we're, we're, we're in regress mode. Okay, so Israel, they, they begin complaining. They forget the promise of God, the power of God, the provision of God. And uh, Moses has sent the spies, the 12 spies, into the land. We've read about that in Numbers. They come back with a huge cluster of grapes, and they talk about just the fruitfulness of the land. But they saw some giants in the land, and they saw some fortified cities in the land. And there were challenges in the land. And so all the people began to get scared. Only two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, uh, claimed the promises of God and says, Listen, God be for us, who can be against us? And yet the word of the ten spies prevail over the word of Joshua and Caleb and the entire camp of Israel is set in an uproar and that leads to this 40 year wandering around in the wilderness because of their unbelief and that's numbers now part of God's judgment on that generation involved them wandering around in circles in the wilderness during those 40 years they were prevented from crossing Jordan and entering into the land but it would be their children, the second generation of Israelites whom God would lead into the land. Which is interesting to me because many of their excuses for not acting in faith and taking the land was that our children are going to suffer because of these giants and all of these obstacles. And yet, the very children that they thought would suffer are going to be the ones who are going to enter the land without their parents. And there's a sobering reminder for us. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy, and I want to just give you an overview, a crash course of Deuteronomy, and really why this is such an important piece. Because again, it shows how the law of God and really the faithfulness of God is being reaffirmed now to this second generation of Israelites who are going to enter the promised land. And really all but the last chapter are attributed to Moses. Now Joshua, he's going to be Moses' successor. And most Bible scholars believe that it was Joshua, perhaps, who penned the last chapter or pens the last chapter after Moses dies. Uh, but the point is, so much of what you read in Deuteronomy is a restatement of key truth that we've already seen in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, you'll discover that here you'll find the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're restated just like they were originally given in Exodus chapter 20. So in the Pentateuch, you've got two places, two chapters you can go to find the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. So really, because Moses is speaking to a new generation, um, reminding them of God's work, uh, recalling to their mind God's ways and his, his history of faithfulness, he wants to make sure, Moses wants to make sure to cover all of these important topics. And so a key word that we'll see in Deuteronomy will be this word covenant, which is a word that really describes the special relationship that God has established with his people. 
And so really, this overall message of Deuteronomy can be organized around three farewell passages that Moses uh, speaks to the people. Because remember, Moses himself is not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. God's going to let him see it. But Moses is not going to get to enter the land. And the reason for that was because of his own failure when God told him to speak to the rock. And instead, in his anger, he struck the rock with his staff. And so details are important. He disobeys God on that matter, and it costs him. It's a very costly mistake on Moses' part. But there's still a picture, though, that's even being illustrated for us, even in the disobedience of Moses and his failure. Because listen, if Moses, uh, if Moses, the name Moses is synonymous with law, Moses' successor, Joshua or Yeshua, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word Jesus, Yeshua is synonymous with grace. The law can get you to the border of the land, but the law can't take you into the land. You need grace to do that. Now listen, y'all... I'd about fell out of my seat if I'd heard my preacher tell me that on a Wednesday night. Now think about it. Law can get us so far. But law cannot take us into our inheritance, can it? No, we need Jesus to do that. And in fact, that's a point that that the Apostle Paul is going to make in Romans. And so the law is sufficient to show me my need for salvation. Oh, but the law can't give me salvation. I need Jesus to do that. I need the gospel. And so that's where we are then here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now I want you to look at chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 1. And let's just read the first few verses. And we'll sort of work our way through these chapters tonight quickly. Uh, But verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazeroth and Dizahab. Dizahab. I guess that's how you pronounce that, but that's my good Western North Carolina pronunciation of that word there. But now listen to this, verse 2. It's an 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. That's a very important verse there because here's a reminder, a reminder of what happened. What should have been a short trip turned into a 40-year nightmare because of the disobedience and unbelief of the former generation. But, verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Indre, beyond the Jordan, In the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. So, right here you have the theme for Deuteronomy. Moses is explaining now the law for this second generation of Israelites. He says to them, the Lord God said to us in Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Forty years, I'd say that's about long enough. Turn and take your journey. Go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's the boundaries of the land that are being outlined there. Land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. And God says in verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. And so here you have the theme, and here you have sort of the sequence of what Deuteronomy is going to be. God is uh, going to use Moses once more to enlighten this second generation of Israelites as to the truth that God had formerly revealed to their parents' generation. And so an important thing that we're going to see tonight is this fact that it's it's the responsibility of one generation to faithfully pass down the truth to the next generation. So that generational obedience is something that becomes a very, very important theme here in Deuteronomy. You see it emphasized 
in the following books of the Old Testament, Joshua, and in particular the book of Judges. Because it's interesting, this generation who inherit the land, they take the land, there's another generation that comes into being that does not know the Lord, and the Bible says that they don't know the works, the things that God did for His people, which means that this second generation, even though they're being warned by Moses and instructed by Moses here in Deuteronomy, for the most part, they're busy fighting battles, and they're busy settling the land, and and they don't educate their children. And that's going to have disastrous consequences for the Israelites, in particular the days of the judges, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. But we'll get to that later. But tonight, let's look at the book of Deuteronomy, and um, I've sort of grouped it under a few headings, four headings in particular. Number one, chapters one, two, and three, we find a short review of the past. A short review of the past. So that Deuteronomy begins with this statement that Israel manages through their disobedience to turn an 11-day trip into a 40-year trial. They go from walking with a sense of direction to wandering around in circles. Which, by the way, has that ever been true in your own experience? Have you ever been in a place where you were making progress spiritually, but for whatever reason, you get off track in your life. You lose focus spiritually. And you find yourself perhaps wandering around in circles and that kind of thing. If you've ever been there, you're going to be encouraged from the overall message of Deuteronomy. Because even despite our faithlessness, God is a faithful God. And aren't you grateful for that tonight? So Moses informs the people that God's finally given this new generation their their marching orders. And God says, you've been here long enough. It's time for you to go. It's time for you to take the land that I've promised to give your forefathers. So God gives them their direction. God reminds them of his promises. And then Moses really begins this this extended extended section recapping all of these Old Testament instructions, which are very, very important. And it would be important for the people once they get into the land to to keep this in mind. So if you look at chapter 1, it's really amazing because we're given a glimpse into Moses' heart as a leader. Because here he's very personal with his words. And, and in chapter 1, he reminds this generation of the failure of the former generation. This is why we've wandered around in the desert for all of these years. And yet, he's also honest in describing his own mistakes. Uh, he says down in verse 37 of that first chapter, uh, The Lord was angry with me too for your sakes, saying to me, Even you shall not go into the land. And so if you can imagine that, it probably made at least for this new generation of Israelites, it probably made their leaders seem more human. That's something that we need to keep in mind when it comes to leadership. I do believe that there's a high bar of expectation that ought to be set for leadership. I think the scripture is clear, especially spiritual leadership in the church. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Brethren, be not many of you teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And yet, at the same time, if we're not careful, we can often sort of have these unrealistic expectations sometimes that we, we have of leadership. But in my own experience, it's always been refreshing to me when those men of God that I've looked up to, who've sort of been mentors, were very open and honest and candid about their own failures in life. Because what that did for me is it really it helped me when I have encountered those times of despair when I have failed. If I've heard it from a mentor and someone that I look to and I trust and I respect, it says, you know, I've been there. I've made these mistakes too. There's something from that openness and transparency that really communicates that sense of honesty to my own heart. And it's really an encouraging thing, isn't it? And so I don't know. That's a good word. I think it should be a good word that parents apply when we have conversations with our children about failures, our own failures. When we've made a mess of things, that we're very open and honest with our children about that fact. And even within the context of the church, because there's only one perfect leader who's ever lived, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so here's another thing, though, we've got to keep in mind. Even when there has been failure and sin in the life of the leader, in no way should that ever be used to justify sin and failure in our own lives. It shouldn't give us an excuse to just go ahead and sin. Uh, that's not what Moses is doing here. He's being very open. He's being very honest about his own failure. But, but none of this gets glossed over. There's not this rosy picture that's painted of it and just sort of overlooked and that kind of thing. No, there are very real consequences because of their failure. They've experienced that the last 40 years. And so only Joshua and Caleb are going to be able to enter the land out of that former generation because they alone had the faith. They were willing to take the land. They alone are going to get to enter the land. You see this in verses 36 and 38. They wholly followed the Lord there at the end of verse 36 of chapter 1. Now you imagine what that must have been like if you were Joshua and Caleb to see 1.2 of your uh, 1.2 million of your fellow contemporaries die before you. Now think about that. All of their friends, their family members that had come out of Egypt with them. That former generation of leaders, they, they die in some form of fashion and only Joshua and Caleb get to enter the land. Someone did the math nearly 40 years, over the course of nearly 40 years, it would have been the average of some 85 funerals per day. Seven people dying every hour during that 40-year sojourn. So that death dogged their steps during those years in the wilderness. And it reminds me of that repetitive phrase that we see in Genesis chapter 5. You know that phrase where you have this genealogy, Adam's descendants and Adam's genealogy, and it mentions someone's name, and then it says, and he died. And then you are introduced to someone else in Adam's genealogy, and he lived so many years, and he begat so many sons and daughters, and he died. And so it's the, there's this cadence in that chapter, and, and it's intended to be that way by the Holy Spirit because it's a reminder that the wages of sin is death. And so there's this very vivid reminder, fresh graves in the desert every day was a sober reminder to the people that the wages of sin is death. Disobedience and unbelief is costly. So that's the short review of the past, chapters 1, chapters 2, where Moses recalls those wilderness years, chapter 3, where he uh, mentioned some military successes. All of it was because of God's faithfulness. So that's the short review of the past. Now notice number two, what I would call a second regulation for the present, which is really the bulk of the book. From chapter 4 all the way through chapter 26. You can call it a second regulation or call it uh, principles to govern, govern their life in the new land that they're coming to occupy but the point is, Moses is restating the law of God a second time for this generation. And so when you get to chapter 4, you'll notice that Moses really shifts from the historical to the legal. And his focus is not so much what God had done on their behalf, but what God had said. So his word is emphasized in these chapters, his promises, his law, his instructions, what was required for their obedient living. So Moses goes back over all of these laws that we've seen in the previous books of Moses. Someone has said this. I thought this was a great statement. New generations always need old truth. New generations always need old truth. You ever heard this phrase? If it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's definitely not new. Now think about that and apply that to this situation here in the books of Moses. New generations need old truth. Why? Because the truth doesn't change from one generation to the next. Now society's opinions may change. Now, what society accepts may change. Popular opinion definitely changes. But the truth never changes. God's word remains the same. And so it's a fact that biblical truth principles 
These are eternal and they span every generation. No matter how modern, no matter how sophisticated one generation may think that it is, and it doesn't need these old truths anymore, but it can move away from these old truths. Listen, I think we've seen very clearly from Romans chapter 1 what happens when a society embraces that idea. When we begin thinking that in our wisdom we can do this, we don't need God, we don't need His wisdom, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. So that in the process, they they can't even navigate life. So the first thing Moses tells Israel is that God doesn't want anybody messing with his word. Look there in chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So don't add to the word. Don't subtract from the word according to what you prefer. Someone says, well, I like this portion of the Bible, but I'm not so keen on that portion of the Bible. Someone says, well, I just follow the words in red. You know, Jesus, he said those nice things. Which, by the way, people who say that, it's really remarkable, the the very things that they forget that Jesus said. Because nobody talked about hell and judgment any more in Scripture than Jesus himself did. So it's not, it's not sufficient. It's not a, an accurate way to handle the truth of God's word when we say, well, I like this, I don't like that. I'll pick this, I won't pick that. I believe this, I won't believe that. Moses is saying, uh, the Lord is saying through Moses to the people, you don't, this ain't Baskin Robbins. You know, we don't, we don't practice Baskin Robbins style hermeneutics. So he focuses the children of Israel on the very important principle of passing the baton of truth to each successive generation. They've got to take the whole counsel of God's word and they've got to teach that to their children. They've got to teach that to their grandchildren, ensuring that God's word gets passed down from one generation to the next. And so for that reason, Moses restates the law and its application. So from chapter 4, Uh, into chapter 5, you've got this emphasis on idolatry as it's forbidden. And then in chapter 5, again, you've got the restatement of the Ten Commandments themselves. In succession, beginning there uh, in verse number 7 of chapter 5. And so Moses and his application of this is going to span all the way through chapter 11. And then from chapter 12 to chapter 16, there's a restatement of the ceremonial law. Chapter 16 through 20, a various restatement of the civil laws which were important for the nation of Israel. Various social laws restated from chapters 21 through 26. But if I were to just highlight a few of these sections, some of the most pressing would be found, obviously, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's in Deuteronomy Uh, Chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we read about the Shema. You know what the Shema was for the Old Testament Hebrew? It's really the Jewish confession of faith which begins this way. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, if you look at that in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen to this, verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, bind it like a sign on your hand, and they'll be as frontlets between your eyes. And so this is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. That Hebrew word, one, it's interesting. The word choice that's used here in Hebrew, <clears throat> it's not a word that means um, absolute single, uh, singularity, but it's a word that means compound unity. Now, this is amazing when you think about it because it's the very same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to describe the husband and wife relationship. When they come together, they are one flesh. 
And so what you see here, even in the Shema in the Old Testament, where this allows for the validity of the doctrine of the triune God, the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Godhead. So the very meaning of this word one here in the Shema points to the truth of the triune nature of Almighty God. And I find that to be absolutely fascinating. And then, of course, the, the first and greatest commandment, according to Jesus, comes from this passage of Scripture, which, by the way, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy more than any other book. You say, well, what book of the Old Testament did Jesus reach back into and quote more than any other book? Was it Isaiah? Even though Isaiah was such a magnificent prophecy that had much to say about Messiah and his future reign and ministry? No. The book that Jesus quotes from the most is this book right here, the book of Deuteronomy. The greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus himself, when there was a lawyer who asked him the question, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, when he says that the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So that you literally see this even in the Ten Commandments themselves. You've got the first table of the law, the first four commandments that have to do with your relationship with God. The second table of the law have to do with your relationships with your fellow man. And it's important that you understand it in that order. Because when my relationship with God is as it ought to be, then my relationships with my fellow man will be as they ought to be. And when my relationships with my fellow man are out of kilter, it's a sure sign that my relationship with God is not what it ought to be. And something else to notice in these chapters in Deuteronomy is the, uh, the, the word remember. I wish I had the number of times that it was used. I didn't, I didn't get that this week. But if you go through and you read it, you ought to take a highlighter and just highlight the number of times that you see that word remember. Remember. God wanted his people to remember the blessings that came through living by his commands, even if it meant they looked back to their wilderness wanderings. Because even though they were wasted years in one sense, in another sense they weren't wasted years because God was teaching his people some very valuable lessons in the wilderness. I imagine that you probably have that testimony too, if you would be honest. You can look back on those wilderness experiences in your own life and you think, man, in the thick of it, you just felt like you were just wasting your, your time, maybe spinning your wheels. But when you're able to look back on it, you're able to see, you know something? God was really doing something in my life during that period of time. Look at chapter 8 for a second. Verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today... You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember, underline that word, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. So God was doing something to humble his people. Testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger. Now, how's that for your theology on a Wednesday night? That God let them experience hunger so that he could feed them with his own manna. Sometimes the Lord will let us hit rock bottom in life only to discover that he is the rock when the bottom drops out of life. <laughs> that he may make you know. Now listen to this. This ought to be a very familiar verse. Verse 3. That he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now who quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3? Jesus did. And what was the context when Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3? Where was he? He was in the wilderness. How long had he been in that wilderness? Forty days. 
One day for every year that Israel was in the wilderness. Here, the true and perfect Israel of God, God himself, the God-man, the perfect son of God, is being tested by the evil one. And when the evil one is testing him, tempting him, saying, you know, you're hungry, why don't you just grab some instant satisfaction and turn these stones into bread? Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. There are just some things more important than physical hunger. There are some things more important than creature comforts. There are just some things more important than a hungry stomach. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need God's word more than you needed that lasagna you ate tonight. You need God's word more than you need your daily ration of food. Because man shall not live by physical food alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the point is, this is something that Moses says the people need to remember. You know, we often forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. (laughs) You can probably remember every hurt that someone's done you, every wrong that someone's done you. But then when you really begin thinking about all of the ways in which God has blessed you, even the little things that we tend to forget and overlook. I'm telling you, we forget what we ought to remember. And then we remember what we ought to forget. That's why I think a journal is probably a helpful discipline. Uh, I call it journal, not diary, guys. Because it doesn't sound too masculine for a guy to say he keeps a diary. But a journal? Yeah, I got me a journal. It's camouflage. (laughs) No, but seriously... You know, it doesn't take, you don't have to write a whole page. You have to write a novel, but just, and, and, and maybe not even daily, but just periodically where you are maybe writing down insights that God is showing you from the Word as you're spending time in prayer and in the Word, and then just a, a daily log. One of the things that I've tried to do is to just journal and, and just brief summaries of my day, things that have happened, encounters that I've had with people, One day my children are going to have some really interesting reading when I'm gone. (laughs) Earlier this week I was thinking about this and I reached up on my shelf and I found a a little three-subject spiral notebook that I started writing in when I was 19. And I was writing what it was like, you know, being a student, and I was, a, I was at Fruitland. I was working at Home Depot, an hourly wage, paying tuition, paying rent, and just journaling, just thoughts and things going on in my life and desires that I had. And I remember just journaling when, during those weeks where I was Longing for an opportunity to preach, I had an encounter with a lady who came into the Home Depot in the paint department. (laughs) And I just read that section in my journal, and it was just as fresh as it was yesterday. What I felt, sensing that the Lord was doing something, knowing that my hours were getting cut at Home Depot. I didn't know why. I still had bills to pay. But somehow God was going to provide And little did I know that from that particular point in my journal, it would be roughly three weeks from that point that that church would invite me to come and sing on a Sunday morning. After that service, the deacons of that church would invite me to come back and preach two weeks later, and I ended up staying there five and a half years. And it's just something when you go back and you're able to just remember, because we forget, don't we? And the longer that we live, the easier I think that it is for that to, to be the case because time gets away from us, the years fly by, but it's so important that we remember God's faithfulness. Now, that's just some things we need to forget. The hurts in your life, and the people who've disappointed you, just forget about it and remember the Lord and his faithfulness. Well, 
Number three, along those lines, a solemn reminder for the future. It's the third heading, beginning in chapter 27. And I know I'm skipping a lot here, but for the sake of time, we'll just move on. Moses is telling the people to prepare. Prepare for their future in the land. <clears throat> and he really addresses what God was going to do next in their life. It's really interesting. You read chapter 27, because Moses is, is a prophet, and he's speaking prophetically in chapter 27. He's prophesying Israel's future both in terms of their near future as well as what's going to happen in their distant future and ultimately what's going to happen to them as the people of God. It's really a fascinating chapter and section. But Moses gives these instructions that on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that's what he says there in chapter, uh, chapter 27 verse 2, he basically tells the people to set up these great stones of remembrance a monument. They're, they're to plaster them, and then they're to write the law of God on those stones. I don't know if you've ever been to Fields of the Wood. Anybody ever heard of Fields of the Wood in Murphy? Well, you're getting ready to learn about Fields of the Wood. Heath knows about it. If you go to Murphy, far southwestern corner of the state, you can go to what's known as Fields of the Wood, and I believe that it's a, um, it's a park that was... Um, I think it was the Church of God based out of Cleveland, Tennessee, that has these two massive hillsides. The reason I know about this, our family's from Murphy. And so um, you drive out past Hiawassee Dam, you go out to Fields of the Wood, and you can see on the hillside in stone, I mean, it's just really a massive, massive monument, the Ten Commandments. So in my mind, I sort of have this fields of the wood scenario going on here where, where Moses is telling the people to just build this tangible monument of stone so that they can write the law of God upon these stones. And, and then the people, uh, once they get into the land, they're, they're to separate, um, they're to move to the central ridge in the land of Canaan, eventually what would become known as Samaria, and they're, divide, uh, they're to divide up into two groups. Half of the tribes would stand on top of Mount Gerizim. The other half would, would be across the valley on another ridge, Mount Ebal. And so the Levites would be there in the valley between the two. And so the first group would call out blessings for obedience. The other would call out curses for disobedience. The Levites, they called out curses as well to which the people would respond with this resounding amen so that what you have happening is just this ceremony in which the word of God is echoing throughout the valley mountaintop to mountaintop and it's recognizing God's choice of Israel and their unique status of God's chosen people who are now come to occupy the land and so Moses then recounts the benefits of obedience in chapter 28 and he says in verses 1 and 2 that if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, then God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings associated with obedience will come upon you and overtake you. Now notice that word if here because this is conditional. So that you need to understand something about the covenants that God establishes with his people in the Old Testament. There are, there are uh, conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. You think about the covenant in Eden. God establishes with Adam and Eve. It's, it's a covenant of conditionality. God clearly gives them the word. He gives them the terms of the covenant. If they break that, then there are going to be consequences. And you know what happens. Uh, you've got the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Is that conditional or is it unconditional? Unconditional. So that the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant, a conditional covenant is bilateral, which means it's two-sided. God says, I do this if you do that. You do this, God says, I'll do that. That's conditional. Unconditional, though, is a unilateral covenant. It's a one-sided covenant where God himself is making a declaration that he's going to keep his promise regardless so that the promise that he makes to Abraham is an unconditional promise. Abraham, I'm going to bring blessing to the whole world through your seed. 
I'm going to give you the land, and I'm going to give your descendants the land. You get over into chapter 30, and you'll notice that this language of covenant is used once more uh, in terms of the land. The land covenant, where God uh, reaffirms his promise to Abraham's descendants that the land belongs to them. Now, why is that important tonight? Because you would look at that and think, well, does this really have any bearing with what's going on in the world today? <laughs> you better believe it. Because there are a lot of people who, who are, um, how shall I say it? You hear the expression now, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Israel doesn't have a right to exist. The land belongs to someone else, not the state of Israel. Listen to me. God made an unconditional promise to Abraham and Abraham's descendants that the land belongs to them. Period. Period. And the blessing for the rest of the world would come when the rest of the world would realize that. But you see, here's what happens. There is, there is a sense in which the Mosaic covenant is conditional. Because the Mosaic covenant has to do with Israel's obedience or disobedience to the law once they're in the land that's been given to them unconditionally. Because if the people of Israel are obedient, then there are blessings that will follow. If the people of Israel are disobedient, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to be vomited out of the land. And so you know how history has played that out. Or that Moses is speaking prophetically here and he's telling the people, here's what's going to happen. You turn to idols and you disregard the law of God. You're going to be scattered among the nations. And you're going to be taken away into captivity. And there's going to be pain associated with disobedience. But here's the wonderful beauty of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who also fulfills with perfection the Mosaic law. That because of his obedience, the kingdom belongs to him. And there's going to be a day in which Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to reign in righteousness. And the Bible says in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God's going to do something again with the nation of Israel. The Old Testament prophets say that there's going to be a point in time when Israel, they're going to repent. And they're going to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to reign over an earthly kingdom. And all of those promises that are made in the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled in the kingdom of Jesus. Amen. And that's a promise that you can take to the bank. And so you remember that when you're dealing with these covenants and you're thinking about blessing and curses for obedience and disobedience. Understand that that's referring to the conditional Mosaic covenant which refers to their Handling of the law of God once they're already in the land. I'm done with this. A shepherd's rest at the end of an era. How does the book end? Well, Moses fades from the scene. By the way, leaders come and leaders go. There comes a point in time when every leader has to pass the baton on to the next leader who will take up the mantle of leadership. And that's what you read about in the final chapters of Deuteronomy. So that God takes Moses to the top of Mount Nebo, or Pisgah, which in Hebrew means summit. He takes him to Mount Nebo, and there's this beautiful vantage point, which is located in modern-day Jordan. In fact, I've got a picture here if you want to look up on the screen. A few years ago, oh, what in the world? Shane, is it not, pick, it's not picking it up? Well, my goodness. Here I have been going right along, and y'all didn't even... Have y'all been getting the blanks? What about it? Nobody's even protested at all. Well, I've got a picture on my laptop of me. It's a picture of me, and I'm standing on top of Mount Nebo in the modern nation state of Jordan. And I'm standing at the very spot where Moses would have been given a glimpse of the entire Jordan River Valley and he would have been given a glimpse into the promised land. Now I'll tell you, it was cold that day. It was, there was a little bit of hailstones that were falling, sleet. 
But I have, I have this idea that when God shows Moses the land, Moses gets a supernatural vantage point. I think that Moses is able to see it in a way that you and I couldn't have seen it perhaps from that vantage point. But I imagine it was clear. He's 120 years old when he dies. He passes the baton of leadership over to General Joshua, and it's going to be Yeshua who's going to lead the people into the land. And you think, you know, isn't that sad? Moses has to spend all of those 40 years with all of those obstinate people, and he don't even get to enter the land. Let me tell you something. God had something better in mind for Moses. I just believe that. Because centuries later, centuries later, Moses is going to be on another mountaintop, And he's going to be in a cloud of glory along with the prophet Elijah, with the God of Israel himself, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. God, help us remember what we ought to remember and forget what we ought to forget. And that's what I take away from the book of Deuteronomy. Lord, may we remember your word and the promises of your word and the hope that we have in your word in seasons of trial and adversity, just like that wonderful hymn that Jonathan led us in tonight, Father. Thank you for the grace and the God of glory and the majesty of God that we meet in the pages of his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In those transition seasons in our life, Lord, where we're able to look back and maybe see that we've learned something from those wilderness experiences. God, may we call to mind your faithfulness and not be so bogged down and riddled with guilt over the past, but be grateful for grace in the present and hope, bright hope for the future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.